Harmony of the Gospels. Last week, as we were wrapping up the study, we were talking about uh, the events of the uh, the widow's mite. As Jesus was standing opposite the treasury, he saw people, the rich folks coming, putting in lots of money into the treasury, and he saw this poor widow come in and put two mites in. It was two small coins that uh, says equals to about a cent, so it wasn't a lot of money. But uh, <clears throat> I got to thinking more about that, and of course the Holy Spirit records those things for a reason, so he wants to teach us something. We're supposed to learn something from, from that event, this widow putting in what uh, Jesus says was all that she had, these two small copper coins. It made me <clears throat> think about what Paul said about the churches in Macedonia as recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. <clears throat> I'm going to read just a little bit of that. In chapter 8, first, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 2, it says, speaking of churches of Macedonia, in that a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So if you soak all of that in, he said, in a great ordeal of affliction, and yet there was joy. And he said, there was deep poverty, and yet there was a wealth of liberality. So it wasn't easy being a Christian in Macedonia in those days. They were suffering. They were being persecuted, and yet there was joy. And there was deep poverty. And of course, we know what Paul was doing. They were, the churches were contributing to give to the needy saints in Judea is what was going on here. And the way it, it's worded, it almost sounds like Paul had decided these, these brethren were so poor he wouldn't even ask them. But there in verse 4 it says, they are begging us with much urging for the favor of participating in the support of the saints. And of course in the next verse he tells us why there could be uh, persecution and joy and deep poverty and yet liberality. It says, because they first gave themselves to the Lord. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 41, remember the apostles had been arrested, put in prison, and had been beaten, and then released. So what did they do? You remember, what did they do when they were released? Go around moaning, oh, why me? Is that what they did? No, they said they rejoiced, that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so you get back to the widow's might. The lesson is not so much about a dollar amount, and I really don't believe it's so much about the degree of the sacrifice. What the lesson is is the attitude toward the sacrifice. She was glad to do it. Those brethren in Macedonia, were, they were joyful that they were able to... Uh, make this sacrifice for the Lord. It's essentially, they were giving it to other Christians, but we'll see later in this lesson that all those deeds are for the Lord. So I think that's the lesson to be learned from the widow's might. You know, she had two coins, so one of those coins would have been 50% of all she had, right? The law of tithing said 10%. He was required to give 10%. So if she'd given just one of those coins, it would have been five times what was required, Right? But she didn't. She gave everything she had. And so it makes me think, kind of, kind of look at self and in the work of the church and in the work of a, just an individual Christian out in the world. Are we busy doing the Lord's work 
and making sacrifices along the way. It could be time, it could be your blessings, it could be your money, it could be a lot of things, but they're uh, small as it may be in comparison to back then <laughs> in biblical days, but not only are we making those sacrifices, but are we joyful in doing it? Are we looking for opportunities? And when I see an opportunity, I'm, am I happy that I'm able to make that sacrifice? I think that's the lesson of the widow's might. Your comments. Brother Bruce. I think it goes even deeper uh, into why her joy was like that and why her, her deed was so wonderful is because of her faith. Uh, Jehovah Jireh, she knew that she, if she even gave everything she had, as poor as she was, that God would provide uh, for her. Absolutely. We, we read that, that in, uh, I think it's 2 Corinthians, about chapters 8 or 9, God will provide abundantly for those that are willing to make those sacrifices. Anything else? Good comment. Okay, uh, we're at lesson number six in our lesson guide. We'll try to get that done this morning. Um, the event is, talks about the disciples. It, I, I guess you've noticed, <laughs> as I put these slides up, I've entitled the slides according to the events as listed in our lesson guide. And uh, some of those events, as we'll see a little bit later, I really disagree with the way they're described. But at any rate, so that's what I've put on the slides, and I put some, some verses that to me relate in some way spiritually to those events. And uh, anybody, by the way, that would ever want these slides, you're welcome to them. I'd be glad to get those to you. Okay, it's, uh, it appears to be Tuesday still in the last week of our Lord's life, and Jesus has been in the temple preaching and teaching uh, most of the day. And chapter, Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, Then Jesus came out of the temple, was going away with his disciples, and came up to a point, uh, out, came out, and some came out to point out the temple's buildings to him, and said to him, Do you not see these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. In uh, Mark's account, he said these wonderful stones, these wonderful buildings, and how beautiful it is in Luke's account. And so this was, of course, Herod's temple. Uh, John 2 and verse 20 tells us that, that the construction took 46 years to build. And apparently it was a pretty beautiful site. And the, the disciples were really struck by the beauty of the temple. And uh, Jesus said the day is coming when this is all going to be torn down. Uh, Josephus tells us that some of the stones in that building were, weighed over a hundred tons. Huge stones. I don't know how they moved them, but evidently they did. We know they did. Nobody knows how they did that these days. So, verse 3, Matthew 24, verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So now... Jesus has left Jerusalem and he's gone out to the Mount of Olives. Just want to show you a little map here. If you look in the upper right corner there, you see the name of the city of Bethpage. The rest of it may be too small for you to read. But just below Bethpage is the Mount of Olives. And if you look 
back toward Jerusalem from the tip of the, the top of the Mount of Olives, you see the Garden of Gethsemane. It's sort of on the lower slopes, be the western slopes of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus has gone out here now uh, in the evening, and the disciples have approached him with some, some questions. Now, I bring that up about the Mount of Olives because that's going to play into uh, the plans of Judas a little bit later. What we're going to see when we get into uh, Luke 21, Luke 22, that uh, at first this week, Jesus had been spending the daytime in, in Jerusalem and at night going back out to Bethany. But somewhere along the way, he had changed. And now he's spending the evenings on the Mount of Olives. And Judas will take note of that fact a little bit later. So the apostles asked Jesus some questions. In Mark's account, he tells us it was Peter, Andrew, James, and John that took him aside privately and asked these questions. Now, I put there uh, Luke 18, verse 34, just a few days before when Jesus was telling the apostles all that was going to happen to him in Jerusalem, uh, Luke said, that uh, the apostles understood none of these things and uh, did not grasp what was said. And so I'm thinking, when Jesus said this about the temple be destroyed, what was in their mind? What were they thinking? Don't really know. Uh, they were probably still thinking that Jesus' kingdom was going to be a physical kingdom, that he would set up the kingdom there in Jerusalem and reign forever. Something along those lines. Uh, don't really know. So the questions that they asked, uh, I don't really know if they understood what they were asking. So we won't go into the questions much, but we'll just look at Jesus' answer and uh, see what he's got to say about it. Um, the uh, short version of Matthew 24 would just go something like this. Jesus will tell them, that, that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and there's a sign that you can look for and when you see this sign, you'll know it's about to happen and you can escape and not be involved in that destruction. He also talks about the end of time when he returns from heaven and uh, at that time, he says, there's not going to be any sign to tell you. It's going to come by when people least expect it Everything in the world is going to be going on just normally, like every day. And there's no way to know when it's going to happen. And he says, I don't know. Nobody knows. Only the Father knows when that's going to be. And so you just need to be ready at all times. And it really won't matter when that time comes, right? And so that's the short version of Matthew chapter 24. But uh, a lot of false doctrine, false teachings about things in this chapter and what I'm going to do is go through it fairly quickly and kind of tell you, see what, what makes sense to me. And I believe I can, I can show you why I believe what I do about it and see if that makes sense. And then we'll open it up and see what your thoughts are. So they asked these, Jesus these questions. And uh, verse 4, Jesus answered them and said, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And will mis mislead many. And you will hear, be hearing of wars, rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for these things must, must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and various places. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes. 
So he says, here's some things that's going to happen before the destruction of Jerusalem, I believe, is what he's talking about. And we'll see the reasons why later. So he said that there's going to be some, when all these things are happening, there's going to be some people that's going to come try to take advantage of you. Here just a few years ago, a prominent politician said, never let a good crisis go to waste. <laughs> and, of course, what he meant was a, a good politician, if there's a crisis, he can use that to his political advantage. Well, Jesus is telling about some people that's going to try to use these difficult circumstances to their advantage. They're going to try to deceive you into thinking they're the Christ and follow them. But he says, don't you believe it. Don't you let them mislead you. Uh, anytime there's uh, difficulties and people are suffering some and then they're looking for some comfort and these shysters are going to come along and, and say they're going to offer some comfort to you when these rumors of wars and famines and so forth is going on, but they have no comfort to give you. In Acts chapter 5, verses 36 and 37, they're named a couple of guys in those days that actually did that kind of thing. But if you think about it, wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes, those kind of things have happened in our lifetime, right? I could remember things like that happening. So these things that he says are going to happen really was nothing unusual. Things like that happened all the time. The warning was these shysters are going to come along while these things are happening and try to deceive you. So don't you be deceived and don't you be frightened. These things are going to happen and, and don't you be frightened about it. So he's talking about uh, things that will happen and, and really pretty much normal things that happen frequently. But uh, don't, don't be deceived about those things. These things, everybody is going to experience these things that are going to happen. Then in verse uh, 8, he says, but these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Look at verse 9. Now he gets personal. He's going to talk about, talk to the apostles, his disciples, and here's what's going to happen to you. Okay? Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and will kill you, and they will, you will be hated uh, by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will be betrayed and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because of the lawlessness is increased and most people whose love will grow cold and the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So all you have to do is read the book of Acts and you'll see... Uh, all of these things happening, right? Uh, in, in Luke's account, he said that uh, they'll bring you before kings and governors for my name's sake, and it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Just read Acts chapters 24, 25, and 26 when, when Paul was in prison in Rome, his first imprisonment. And of course, it was kind of a house arrest kind of imprisonment. He was able to preach and teach. It gave him lots of opportunities to preach in Rome because he was having to appear uh, before Caesar. So we see in the book of Acts and some of the other epistles as well that all of the things that Jesus said here would happen to them actually did in time. He talks about that uh, many will fall away but uh, he who endures to the end will be saved. I take that to mean to remain faithful throughout your life. Don't let difficult circumstances 
uh, cause you to lose faith. Revelation 2 and verse 10, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. The entire book of Hebrews is all about that, right? He's writing to Hebrew Christians who were suffering. And again and again and again, he encouraged them to hold fast. And uh, there in chapter 10, I'm going to read verse 36. He says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. So Jesus is telling the apostles before this fall of Jerusalem, before all this temple is all to be torn down and all that, you're going to have to suffer a lot. You're going to be persecuted. Some of you are going to be killed. Some of you are going to be imprisoned. Some of you appear before the rulers and all those kinds of things. But you remain faithful. Be faithful to the end. In verse 14, there it, says, it talks about the gospel of the kingdom be preached to all the world, to all nations, and then the end will come. Some take that verse to mean, okay, as soon as I've had people tell me this, that that verse means as soon as the gospel is preached to every creature, then that, that's the end of the world right there. How do we know that that's not true? What does Colossians 1 and verse 23 tell us? It talks about the gospel which was preached and proclaimed under, in all creation under heaven. So, what's that? It's already happened. Colossians 1 verse 23 says it's happened. Romans 16 verse 26 said that the gospel has been made known to all nations. And there are other passages. So we know that the gospel has been preached to all nations at, at that time already. So that couldn't be what Jesus was saying. But he was merely telling the apostles, you're going to suffer these things while you're preaching the gospel. And God is going to give you the time to preach it to all nations and all that's going to happen before this destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 15 of Matthew 24. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through the, Daniel, the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea and flee to the mountains or must flee to the mountains, and whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Uh, I'm going to stop right there for just a moment. In Luke's account, uh, where, where Matthew says the abomination of desolation, Luke says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. He's saying, here's, here's a sign. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you know the time is near of what I told you was going to happen. And he said, it's not, uh, in my mind, I, I, I vision just the people that are in Jerusalem better get out, but it's more than that. In Luke's account, he says, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. So anywhere you are in Judea, you need to get out when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Now, did that happen? Did, the, did, did Christians uh, pay attention to that and get out? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. I think every letter, every book of the New Testament except Revelation was written before the destruction of Jerusalem. So it doesn't tell us what happened there. Now, there are uh, historians such as Eusebius and Epiphanes 
And I'm just going to read one quick sentence from, from uh, Eusebius. He said, uh, I'll give you a little background. When the Jews started a revolt in 66 AD, and the, and the Roman governor of the Syrian province uh, took a, a legion of soldiers and went down and surrounded Jerusalem with a, in an attempt to put down the uprising. But he was not a military man. He made a lot of military blunders. And basically, I'll just say he was not successful and he wound up retreating and going back to where he came from. Okay? So his name was Cestius Gallus. What Eusebius uh, said was this. After Cestius Gallus had raised the siege and Vespasian was approaching with his army, all who, uh, all who believed in Christ left Jerusalem and fled to Pella and other places that's east of the, of the Jordan River. So according to this fellow, they saw Jerusalem surrounded by armies and they got out. Now, how accurate that is, I, I, I don't know. He, he, he lived in the third and the fourth centuries, so it was a couple of hundred years after the fall of Jerusalem and how, where he got his information, uh, I don't know. But as uh, far as just profane history, we'll, there's a lot more could be said, but we're pressed for time, so we're going to move on. Don't know if Christians heeded Jesus' warning or not. Uh, some say that they did, and of course we hope that they did. So he said, then when you see the Jerusalem surrounded by armies, get, get out of Judea, get out of the city, uh, which some ways is a little bit counterintuitive. Back in those days when there was danger, you would go into the city for protection. But he said, no, get, get out of there. Um, but woe to you, this is verse 19 of Matthew 24, woe to those who are pregnant those days who are nursing in those days. And I want you to notice how many times we're going to say those days. Those days. All right, that's going to play into this thing here in a little bit. So woe to you that are pregnant in those days, but pray that your flight will, will, be, will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Why would that be? Make it more difficult to flee, right? You see, it's time to get out of there, and the winter would be tough. Sabbath, the, the, the gates of the city might be closed. Various things would make it more difficult to flee. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. Now, if you ever read Josephus' account of the destruction of Jerusalem, I mean, it, it was awful. And I'm not even going to try to go into it. But uh, I'll just say this. There was at one time that the Romans were crucifying 500 Jews a day. He said there was, there was no more room to put up any more crosses. And a lot of things. So the tribulation, it was terrible, terrible. He said, verse 22, unless those days had been cut short, life would, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect of those days were cut short. You know, the siege was only about five months. When the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, it was 18 months. But the Romans were able to batter down the walls. There were three separate walls. And eventually they were able to get through all three and Jerusalem fell within five months. Verse 23, then, okay, so that, now we've gone forward in time for he had warned about these false Christs before when all these things were happening before the destruction of Jerusalem. Now he's talking about during and after the destruction. Then, if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise 
and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead many. I forgot to forward them. He says, see, I have told you in advance. If anyone says, behold, he is there in the wilderness, do not go after him, do not believe him. And he says, here's the reason why you shouldn't believe him. He says, before the lightning comes from the east and flashes to them to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So he's saying, when I do come, nobody's going to have to tell you. You're going to see it, and you're going to know it. Nobody will have to tell you, oh, the Christ is over here, the Christ is over there. No, Every, everybody's going to see, and everybody's going to know. Nobody will have to tell you about that. He says, uh, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. I think he's talking about the corpse being uh, the Jewish nation that has rejected the Christ and the vultures possibly than the Roman armies surrounding the city. It could just be the corpses, anyone who is in sin, is dead in sin. Uh, Ephesians chapter two, verse one, talk about when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Could be just talking about anyone who is dead in sin, then there's a day of judgment coming. Maybe that's all he means there. Any thoughts about that? Where the corpses of vultures will gather. Brother Bruce. Well, I think he gives the same uh, idea in Revelation at the end of the world. Uh, but also here, I, I agree with you. I, th I think, go back to verse 27, that idea of the Son of Man coming. I don't think he's talking about the second coming. I think he's talking about the coming of the Son of Man's judgment upon the Jewish nation. And therefore, they're just going to be destroyed with all of their their pomp and, and uh, rebellion against God being pictured here as, as in Revelation with all evil being corpses and, and carcasses that feed the, the vultures and the birds of prey. Okay, so, so uh, judgment, judgment is coming to all in sin. Yeah. Oh, Leanne. Um, when before they crucified Jesus, um, God kind of warned them and told them if they crucify his son, that there was going to be a destruction in Jerusalem. Um, uh, it was, it was that, um, it, it wasn't that God didn't know that he was going to be crucified, but this just goes back to um, uh, God has a, has um, justice for the, those that are sinned against, those that hurt people that are innocent and that are um, are, are are people that are like his children that were being hurt and stuff by them. There was there was going to be justice for that, and that was why Jerusalem fell, because they um, they crucified the prophets and they um, they killed God's children, and so that's why one of the big reasons Jerusalem fell, which is a warning for any nation that persecutes Christians, that there will be a judgment and there will be a day where you have to answer for that. Yeah, that's what uh, Revelation is all about, right? God wins, the devil loses. If you're on God's side, you're in, you're in good shape. If you're not, you're in pretty bad shape. Else? Verse 29. 
But immediately after the tribulation of those days, this is about the uh, third time those days have been used in what Jesus said in tribulation of those days. What days was that? What he just talked about in the uh, destruction of Jerusalem when you, when you got to flee. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken and so forth. <clears throat> I, I believe that this is, of course, prophetic language and we can read similar language back in Isaiah chapter 19 talking about judgment coming on Egypt and other various countries. So I, I still think he's in that mode of talking about the judgment on uh, Jerusalem, on the Jews in general that rejected the Christ. And he's depicting that in some pretty colorful prophetic language here. Uh, verse 32, now learn the parable of the fig tree. And so here, here, here's a lesson that we all, we can understand this. You pick out most any tree you want and when you start seeing it put on leaves, what do you know is coming next? Summertime, right? <laughs> put on the leaves in the spring, and pretty soon summer's coming along. So he said, now here's a le learn from the fig tree. When you see it putting on leaves, you know, you know summer's coming. So you too, when you see all these things, what things? All he'd been talking about up until now. Recognize that he is near right at the door. So this reckoning this judgment is right at the door and then he says in verse 34 truly i say to you this generation will not pass away until all these things take place oops went too far uh so everything i've said to you up until now he said and all this conversation it's all going to happen within this generation of people so uh, it couldn't be talking about anything about the end of the world, could it? Because the end of the world hadn't happened yet. And uh, so, but, but these things are going to happen. And you might say it like this. It's going to happen in your lifetime. Everything I've told you now is going to happen in your lifetime. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. He's saying you better listen to what I'm saying because what I'm saying is the truth and it is going to happen. So you need to listen up. Now, verse 36, things are going to change. He says, but of that day. See, it's not those days any longer, is it? Before he said, those days and those days and those days and those days. Now he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even angels of heaven nor son, but the Father alone, for he's coming. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. So what's he saying? Now, when, when Jesus comes the second time, there's not going to be a warning. Now, when Jerusalem is destroyed, you're going to see a sign, and you can know it's about to happen, and you can get out of town. But when I come again, there's not going to be a warning. He says, I don't know when it's going to be. Nobody knows when it's going to be, only the Father. And when it does happen, it'll be when you least expect it. It's going to be just like when Noah, you know, the day that Noah and his family went into the ark and God closed the door. What was everybody else doing that day? Just going about life like normal, right? Now, Noah had been preaching the gospel. The, teach, the Bible tells us he was a preacher of righteousness. 
and telling them things that was going that what was going to happen, but there was never a sign to say, okay, today's the day. <laughs> and he says, he's saying, when I come again, that's the way it's going to be. There's not going to be a warning. There's not going to be a sign saying, okay, tomorrow the Lord's coming. It's not going to be like that. Let's see. Um, so with the coming of the Son of Man, be verse 39, verse 40, there will be two in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women grinding at the mill, one be taken, and one will be left. I've got First uh, Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 there. You're probably familiar with that. But uh, he describes uh, the end of time. Get my... says, um, let's see, I'm going to start reading about... Uh, Verse 16, but the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then when we who are alive and remain, we'll be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet him in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So you can see how that description of the end of time fits with this about one being taken, one being left. Uh, by, by the way, if you think back about the warnings before about the destruction of Jerusalem. He warned them to get out of town, to flee somewhere. Well, if, the, if that was the end of time, which some try to say that it is, what good would it do to flee to the mountains at the end of time? That, that doesn't make any sense at all, does it? <laughs> so you know that what he was talking about then was not the end of time. But now it is. So he doesn't say flee anywhere now, does he? He just says, want to be taken, want to be left. Want to be taken want to be left. So the, the righteous will be taken to meet the Lord in the air, he says. And of course, the dead in Christ will rise first. And so, then he begins about uh, verse 42, therefore be on the alert for you don't know the day or, uh, your Lord is coming. Be sure of this. If the head of the house had known what time the night of the thief was coming, he, he would have been on the alert and his house would not be broken into. So he tells a little parable here about a man he has some servants. And he's going to go away, and he's going to come back. And what's he going to find his servants doing? While he's gone away, uh, Mark says he's assigning to each one his task. He also commanded the doorkeeper to stay alert. So while the master's away, he's telling that he's giving his servants tasks to do. And when he comes, the one uh, that's doing the faithful servants will be blessed and and the one who was, who was not doing what he was told to do there in verse 51 and will be cut in pieces and sign him a place with the hypocrites uh, and that in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth so the way I see this is he's saying okay at the end of the time there's not going to be any warning but just be ready be prepared well how, how, how do you do that see that's the well, my mind works. Okay, it's all right to say, okay, I've got to be prepared, but, but how do I do that? So what he's saying in this little parable is you need to be doing what the master told you to do. Be busy doing what the master told you to do. And when he comes again, he finds you busy doing what he told you to do, then things are going to be good. If he comes back and finds you not doing what he told you to do, it's not going to be so good. You'll be go to that place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth.
chapter 25. He continues with this thought about, we've got about five or six minutes, this thought about being prepared, and, and, and he's continuing to tell us, to, to warn us, to be prepared, and I believe what he's doing is telling us how to be prepared. So here's the parable of the uh, ten virgins. You remember how it goes. They were, they were going to the uh, meet the bridegroom. There were five wise, five foolish. They all had uh, lamps with fuel in it. And the five wise carried extra fuel, and the five foolish did not, and the bridegroom delayed. And uh, the five foolish had to go buy some more fuel for the, for the lamps, and while they were gone, the bridegroom came and they were left out. And so essentially it's the same lesson as about the, the master and the servant, the master going away and coming back. Uh, so, but it does carry with it a little the idea of planning to get ready. You know, it, you, you remember about the unjust steward and, the, and the, uh, the master found out about and fired him. But he, then he went about uh, making some friends so that he would, somebody would take him in when he was, didn't have a job. And, and Jesus said that, uh, the, paraphrasing, the people of the world put more time and planning and effort and shrewdness into collecting physical things than the son of God, sons of God do in the spiritual things. So he's encouraging us to use the same uh, planning, the same effort, uh, and, and working at being a, a good child of God and doing God's will as the world does in gaining worldly treasures. And it seems like that's sort of the, the idea here because these, the five wise had planned ahead. Okay, and they were working, and I take that uh, going to Bible classes, doing things that build your faith on a daily basis, and working in the kingdom, and so you're preparing that way, see, and so that you'll be ready when the bridegroom comes. Never in the scriptures are we encouraged to wait till tomorrow to obey the gospel. You think about Acts 16, the uh, Philippian jailer. And what was an earthquake about midnight? And you remember what all happened? And it said uh, they obviously preached the gospel to the jailer and his family, and, and he believed, and, said, and he was baptized the same hour of the night. They didn't say, well, let's, let's wait till daylight to take care of this. No, today is the day of salvation. And so, um, again, verse this is uh, Matthew 25, verse 13, be then on the alert then. For you do not know the day or the hour. Don't wait till tomorrow to get ready. And that's the lesson of the ten virgins. Then there's the parable of the talents. Uh, what, is, what is the lesson in the parable of the talents? What would you say the lesson is there? It's a little, little bit different. It's still teaching us to be ready. Alan? Live up to your potential. I like that. I think it really is pretty close to the exact same as what we, as the, the, the ten virgins in that, because you see the master goes away and they don't know when he's coming back and they've been given work to do. And I think, I think we at times we make some 
some applications here that are supported biblically elsewhere, but I think in the context, it really is driving home, Jesus, be ready, because he gave these servants work to do, and they had no idea when he was going to show back up and say, okay, what have you done? And some have been working, and you see the one that he, he wasn't working, and they knew they should be, some did, and then the one didn't. I, I think that's still the I think he's really stressing with different pictures as much as he can that you need to be working, that we have to be working. And so that's how you are ready when he comes back. Were you working or not? You know, working and using those blessings that God gave you to do the work along the way. Any, any other comments there? So while he's getting over there, just, of course, there was one who had... God gave five talents, one, two talents, one, one talents, the five-talent man, the two-talent man. They used what God gave them. And, and to, to bear fruit, the one-talent man didn't use it and didn't bear fruit, and he would be cast out. You can't just be a good person and be acceptable. you got to be a working, uh, one with working faith. And, uh, you know, the, the Scripture says, you know, if you see somebody that's hungry and, you, and cold or naked, you say, Go down, be fed and clothed. What what good does that do if you if you don't do anything? That's basically what these others were saying. Uh, the other parables. Exactly. Uh, being a child of God is a labor of love, right? Uh, it's it's a work. It always is. Our, our time is up. We won't get into uh, the next parable here, but. Uh, how many times have we already seen, and we'll see it again uh, in the next few lessons, that uh, the lesson about being humble and being a servant and be willing to sacrifice. So it's always about being, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, according to Jesus? The best servant, right. So it's, it's not the one who is high up in an authority and going to oversee other people, but it's, it's the greatest servant. Okay, we'll pick up, Lord willing, next week, Matthew 25 uh, and verse 31, uh, warnings about the judgment.